I landed. I made it uh, through customs. Yeah. I didn't get detained or anything. Wow. Yeah, baby. And you know what? The flight back from uh, Paris on Air France, they still had ashtrays embedded in the doors to the <laughs> bathrooms. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, man. Bon vivants. That's how you know you're flying on something as old as the Spruce Goose or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, why on earth are we are we doing this? Yeah. Oh, what's the name of the guy? Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, yeah. That's it. Sure. I got to say, though, Air France, the best. Uh, I felt like I was in the 1980s taking this flight across the Atlantic back and forth because uh, they still had ashtrays. Um, they still also had good service. Like the uh, flight attendants seemed as though they enjoyed their jobs and they brought uh, like good cooked food. It's still airplane food, but the uh, food provided was all complimentary. They're like, uh, would you like wine, white, red, champagne? Really? You know, totally. And, uh, you know, if you take uh, airlines in most places in the United States, they charge you for a bottle of water and headphones. Yeah. So it's I mean, a very different uh, vibe. Oh yeah, international is the one. Though. International, they they make with the drinks, and they really uh, they put in the extra legwork. Depending yeah. on the airline, actually, dude. Yeah. So I went, and I had no, uh, I have no cultural context to or reference point for France. Really, you know, it's not a a country or a culture that I've ever thought. Man, I can't wait to go there. You know, I've I've met uh, Germans before I liked. I've met people from Amsterdam I liked, uh, it, you know, in passing in New York City. And then also uh, we we come from like a English or British colonial context. And then Latin America, Spanish. So, you know, I don't have uh, even the French colonial thing going on. Right. But uh, I get there and I got to say right off the bat, um, so glad I watched the movie uh, Battle of Algiers because... <laughs> <laughs> Because I get there and I do an open, I do a, not an open mic, a real legit comedy show uh, the first night I'm there, like after landing at uh, Au Chat Noir, like the Black Cat. Yeah. And uh, some comedians on the show, Algerian. And I was like, hell yeah, dude, you guys are awesome. And Algerians are like the, you know, they're like the Mexicans of France. Yes. In a lot of ways. Yes. Or the Puerto Ricans of France. Yep. You know, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but the uh, post-colonial vibes are strong. Yeah, hell yeah. You know, their eyes lit up when I was like, dude, you guys are the best. Love your culture. Love your movies. Love your struggle. You know, fuck Camus for not backing you guys. Yeah. <laughs> to meet um, international people in Paris. Outside of the uh, white people that dress in white and like chambray. They love white and blue. They all dress like Smurfs. Yeah. Just the white ones. Yeah, they do. And there's just an air of arrogance in paris at least like if you try and speak french to them they're like don't even bother don't even bother the only thing you need to know how to say is bonjour and uh merci yeah right so like good day good morning and thank you but speaking spanish there they love it first off they think you're uh from spain which is great or uh when they ask you where you're from and you say mexico they're like hell yeah or colombia they have class consciousness so every cab driver we were with uh, everybody that we talked to that was a bartender who asked and we said Colombia, they were like, oh, hell yeah, Petro. Like they love the socialist president in Colombia because they understand like global politics and enjoy being in unions and having, you know, uh, workers protections. Wow. <laughs> what a place. Yeah. Not like us, like savages who uh, fetishize Elon Musk and uh, can't wait for the freedom uh, to freelance and not have health care. Wow, yeah. I mean, I feel like that is one thing about France that is definitely different than here. Like, everyone is trying to smash the unions here. <laughs> They're hiring ex-CIA people to smash the unions right now. Yeah. And to spy on union people. Uh, it's a huge fear. They think that this whole country is going to go union and yeah. that they won't be able to stop it. And then how they exploit everyone no it's better if we're all just doordash employees right that's the best just having <laughs> have economy lords yeah just having strangers deliver your food uh to you like you know 
as as though as though there won't be lunatics that grind glass and put it in your food. I mean, that is when it started. There was no way to even tell if someone tampered with your food. There was a hilarious meme video of a guy who was working for DoorDash, stealing food out of people's DoorDash orders. Sure. And just putting it into their own like plate and stuff and eating it. And then I'm delivering it. I'm into that. Like half the meal. How do you know how many shrimp you're supposed to have? It's right, almost like exactly. the Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, like <laughs> scenario. I don't know. I think it's season one, but like the guy returns Larry's food and he's eating a couple of the shrimps. Yes. That's what I would do if I was a DoorDash dude or like, I eat, I eat like two or three shrimps out of your little plastic container or some of the Kung Pao chicken nuggets <laughs> or the General Toes chickens. That's yeah. delicious, too. And you're like, hey, there was hey, I guess there was only three pieces in there. Yeah. Sorry about like, that. Why is there greasy <laughs> fingerprints all over this container? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess there's slobs there. Yeah, they've got it. You know what they got to do is they got to put little um, almost when you rob banks, how there's the dye packs that explode. Yeah, exactly. They've got to put dye packs on the outsides of the containers. So if your DoorDash guy opens it, uh, well, he's in his like Honda Subaru or his uh, Honda or his Subaru or whatever. If he opens it, the dye pack like you know blows up, up in their face. Yeah, so you can tell <laughs> if they've been trying to uh, snack on your, uh, you know, sukiyaki. From the Japanese restaurant. No, I mean, I guarantee you people do it, but now people are stapling the bags. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that you can tell, like, hey, why is there staple holes in this bag? This thing's wide open. There's DoorDash like boys. Everywhere. DoorDash boys, here's your life hack. Uh, get yourself a staple remover. A staple remover <laughs> <laughs> and, and a staple gun. <laughs> exactly. And you're done. Go to Staples. Yeah. Today. And just pound half of everyone's food, tax them. Uh-huh. And then be like, look, guys, it was stapled. It was still stapled shut. So I clearly didn't tamper with it. Then the restaurant will start sending out diarrhea-infused food to see if their DoorDashers get sick. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, like a, like a uh, what, what do they call those? I think that it's like death pills. Uh, I know that there are myths, at least, in uh, neighborhoods with, like, lots of drugs that the dealers will put one or two uh, pills with fentanyl in the supply. So uh, one, when somebody overdoses, the other junkies go, oh, this is good stuff. No. Yeah. <laughs> you are fucking kidding me right now. I mean, that's something I saw on TikTok. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised though. Sure. Sure. Because if it, if it looks like it almost killed somebody, it must be good. That, what you just said, though, is interesting because there are people who straight up die and are brought back to life by Narcan and then die again the same day and then are brought back to life by Narcan. Sure. It's like getting COVID three times. It's the same. <laughs> Maybe a little harder than that, but yeah. It's the same. Oh, you got struck by lightning twice? God damn. I got to say, man, the food there, though, I didn't feel like any of it was tampered with. Uh, right. I could... Uh, one of the biggest things I noticed was not so much that the cooking was uh, fancy or complicated, but more that all of the ingredients felt uh, legit, like Whole Foods ingredients. You know, uh, every leaf from the salad tasted like a garden. It wasn't the wilted iceberg lettuce that we get on our Wendy Wendy's hamburgers here. Right. It was real deal. Yeah. There's reasons why, though. Uh, what is that? Um, uh, pride? The- pride and... In- <laughs> pride <laughs> They actually care about what they eat An and FDA feed people. <laughs> well, no, it's also because they have laws out there where you're supposed to actually have small producers be able to have skin in the game instead of just have massive producers take over and be the supply chain for a huge restaurant. So they have to offer local produce in the market before offering, you know, imports or like whatever mass produced. Yeah, producer. it sounds terrible. It sounds like a, a a slap in the face to the free market. Yeah, yeah. I, there is no free market with those huge produce makers. Yeah. They basically drive everyone out of business, undercut them, and then just are the ones. So I definitely felt really healthy eating, even though it's all like cream-based diets. They're all cream boys there. Yeah. Like you can you can go from eating your cheese to drinking your yogurt to like cream in your coffee. Yeah. To ice cream. The, the French eat ice cream for breakfast. They, oh, yeah. they eat ice cream uh, at noon, uh, 4 p.m., 8 p.m., midnight. You'll see kids on the street 
smoking cigarettes in one hand and licking ice cream cones in the other. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Killing their taste buds and eating ice cream at the same time. Yeah, they don't get fat, though, because their portions are very small. Yeah, I think also they walk everywhere. Uh, it's um, Paris is the most walkable city I've ever been in, and we live in New York City. It's 100% more walkable than... Yeah. Uh, they've got this concept of flaneur. So a flaneur is somebody that basically just... Uh, it is the it is the active action of wandering. So like uh, the city is designed for wandering because it's maze like, you know. And uh, even here in New York, I guess you can say, hey, every every you, around every corner is a surprise. But our city's gridded, so it's not the exact same experience of of um, a city designed for you to get lost safely. Yep. You know, outside of maybe the financial district or. Uh, West Village. The West Village. Yeah. yeah. West Village is fun because, like, you'll get lost and you'll be surprised. And usually it's from, like, a dildo that's hanging in the window of a store. You're like, who could fit that leg-sized dill inside of them? That's a surprise. Yeah, a lot more sex sex shops in the West Village than in uh, most of France, most of Paris. Yeah. Aside from, like, the one red light district. Um at the base of Montmartre. I can't remember the neighborhood right there, but they do have a almost Times Square-ish. Uh, but by Times Square, nothing like Times Square because right. Paris's uh, architecture, a majority of the buildings are not over five stories tall. So there's this uniformity in the height, but also uniformity in the architecture. So no matter where you are in the city, you can tell you're in Paris. It's like... And there's inscriptions on the buildings that say 1775. So literally a year before the United States was built, um, they there are buildings that are, and they're not mansions. They're just apartments, but they're older than our country. Oh, yeah. That's what I love about Europe. You Anywhere you go, it's something from 16, 1700s. Yeah, man. And uh, why? Why not? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And built to last. the city burnt down. <laughs> yeah. Built to last. Right. And I was thinking about that uh, in terms of even generational wealth. Like if you if a parent, a, a, a family could pass down a house to their kids, to their grandkids, to their great grandkids in Paris. But like if you own a McMansion in Arizona, the balsa wood and drywall are going to rot within like 20 years. So you basically just bought like a giant uh, factory tract house. Right. <laughs> that's going to be on land that will be a desert again that you know inevitably not, yeah so uh it's almost like a waste of we like even when we mm, build uh expensive things here they're like they're basically just like sneakers you right know, it's the equivalent of like yeezys like no matter what it's still just a fucking sneaker so mcmansion is still just a, a trailer park house that's got three stories <laughs> It's just trashy. Yeah, it's just garbage. And in 30 years, it's completely obsolete. Yes. Because there are things about European houses. They're functional, and they are very basic in many ways. And then McMansions out here, they're just outdated within 10 years. I've seen something that's been built in 1990 or 20, or 2000s, sorry. Yeah. Uh, somewhere around 2000, and it just visibly looks old and outdated and corny. Yeah. Well, they just don't, we don't use stone anymore. Right. <laughs> and there's just fad things like intercoms in the wall. Nobody uses that shit. Yeah. There's text me. Oh, well it's even here in New York city. I would have, I'd see these beautiful old, um, schools and churches that got, uh, that like, um, Hasidic, uh, real estate developers would, um, got the inside and renovate it. And the insides were all like tiny stalls for people to live in, like cubicle apartment spaces with uh, USB ports or uh, a charger for your iPhone 10, you know? And now we're on like the 13. <laughs> so, 13 or whatever, yeah. So just seeing how quickly these glitzy things get outdated. Yeah, because they're all trends. Yes. That are just in the past. <laughs> and they become in the past so quickly. Yeah. Or they're they're like uh, look at under uh, our kitchen with its um, uh, electric stove has uh, underneath it and above it would have like a neon green light like the bottom of a fancy 
drag race car from The Crow? Something that made your kitchen look like it was from a Joel Schumacher Batman movie? Right. It was just an LED strip. Yes. I had that in my old apartment. <laughs> That's why I was like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. My trip to Paris was different than yours. Very different. I How mean, so? I've, I've had many trips to Paris. So we used to take Air France to get to India. Mm-hmm. And we would go in the winter times a lot. So we would stop in Paris <laughs> and make a few days out of it. Uh, but the first time I remember going, we were on a big European trip with my parents. Uh, we wound up staying in London for like a month or a month and a half while my parents gallivanted around Europe. But they took us to Paris with them. We had our own hotel room that was adjacent to my parents' room. So there was a door in between us. I sat down and watched TV with my sister. We are flipping through channels. And there was porn on the TV. Yeah. And this was at noon. This, this was, was like at noon. On, yeah. a sun- on a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> it made no sense. Yeah. And I was just a little kid. So I remember seeing this just filthy porn and I was shocked. I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. It was just shocking, though. To Decadent me. Europe. Yeah. And I was like, I know there's something wrong about this because these people are naked. So I sure. shouldn't be watching this. But the channel before it or after it was uh, Front Sesame Street. Yeah. So it was like Olga Namer's version of Cookie Monster. <laughs> 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 no, but um, yeah, for real, it was Sesame Street and it was in French. So that was one thing I remember. We went to the airport, Charles de Gaulle. Um, when we were leaving, I remember there being two kids that somehow broke into the alcohol at the airport and got super, super drunk. And their dad was yanking them by the ears. When you say kids, like you mean 10-year-olds? Yeah, 10 to 13, maybe max 13 years old. Uh, they were blackout drunk, making trouble, and their dad was yanking them by the ears and slapping them across the face. Yeah. And um, I think they worked there or something. It didn't make much sense. And this was a French dad doing this? He was this? a French dad, yeah. yeah. They were all yelling in French. Um. So those were some crazy memories of my first trip. But then throughout my childhood, we would go, and one thing I had noticed was they used the franc back then uh, as currency, and everything was obnoxiously expensive. A Coke or something was like four francs when I was a kid, and francs were more than a dollar. So yeah. think about a Coke being four francs in 1987 or whatever. But um, when I was uh, – the last time I went was maybe – uh, seven, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago, actually. Now that I think about it, about 10 years ago, and one of my sister, we met up with her friend who is Algerian and was wearing a hijab. And so I was with my mother, my sister, both my sisters and my sister's friend. And the French police came up to us and they started harassing the shit out of us. Dude, they hate it when you cover your hair. Yeah, they cannot stand it. But they were uh, coming after us specifically. They argued with her briefly, and then they started asking me, show me your papers. Yes. So I yanked my U.S. passport out and almost smacked the guy across the face with it. I was, I like put it in his face and was waving it in his face. And I was like, I'm American, you fucking pig. Uh, no, we are, it's a egalité, fraternité, liberté. We have it all here, um, except the... Uh, you know, no, we like um, the North Africans, but the different than uh, South Af- the Africans below. You know, there's Mediterranean, but then there's black. And yeah. They're still racist, dude. We met. Yeah, I met like uh, like a Nazi Gusano there. This guy, uh, he was a French guy uh, who on the last day, and I say uh, like a Nazi. I don't know exactly, but dude, I intuited because he said um, he was like, "Oh, you're from." Uh, Latin America, my family had to go to Venezuela um, after World War II. And I was like, why? In my head, I'm like, why? Yeah, why? <laughs> why? Hmm. You know, fr- your French family had to go to Venezuela. I don't know what type of collaborating you did. And then uh, and then he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I went to a German school when I came. Uh, oh, he's like my, my uncles. Once the socialists took over in Venezuela, his family got uh, like Shocked. blacklisted. They had to co- go back to France. And... He he's like, oh, yeah, I know German because I went to a German school as well. So it's like, okay, so your family loves Germany. Yeah. 
uh, and they had to leave after World They're War II. They were expelled after World War II. Yeah. Um, and and he was the one talking about, like, no, oh, you want to go to Marseille? Because uh, we had a cool cab driver from Tunisia who was like, you got to go to Marseille. Marseille's like, um, he, he called it the capital of Africa with pride. And then we were like, we want to go visit Marseille. And, and this French guy's like, no, it's so dangerous. Uh, everyone's in hijabs and sells, deals drugs. Uh, just not saying anything. And I was like, yeah, you're saying a lot, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to go there. Did you say deals drugs? <laughs> yeah, dude. I like <laughs> I like fashion <laughs> and drugs. So hijabs, uh, yeah. Lacoste jumpsuits, and some of that. <laughs> and ketamine. Lacoste jumpsuits and a hijab, the combo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it just rubbed me the wrong way. I was really upset there. There was a lot of incidences of just open racism. And my sister's friend just told us how tough it is to be algerian there and how the, even in the neighborhood they live in they've been there for 30 some odd years or whatever it is um even in the neighborhood they live in their neighbors are always out to get them always trying to call the police on them always trying to harass them make it uh, unbearable to live in the neighborhood so all of this is definitely um true right and I, one of my favorite movies from the 90s is lahane which follows it's a great movie lahane follows uh it's a the day after a police brutality incident, like a Michael Brown, um, Black Lives Matter like incident in France, uh, in Paris. There's like a a riot, an uprising, and in the housing projects, there's three young men. One is a Jewish, one's Arab, and one's from uh, Africa, and they all it's like their day wandering around the city, and it is like it's in black and white, but it's like from the '90s, so it's like. I, I think it fits into um, hip-hop cinema, you know? It's, like, it's, a, it's international, but it also is, like, a hip-hop movie. Nice. And uh, it's also, like, came out around the same time as kids. So the same, without the sexual assaults, it, you know? <laughs> but it follows a similar, like, uh, idea of, like, day in the life of right. wandering around the city uh, for disenfranchised groups. And it's awesome. So everything you're saying is correct. And uh, as a tourist there, though, I saw, like, I can count the number of police I saw over seven days. So there, the police presence in the center of the city is, like, limited, nil. nil. Like, they have no dumb, like, MTA transit cops like we have just, like, you know, uh, like, uh, attacking turnstile people or uh, churro ladies. Right. You know, the cops are... Almost non-existent. I also only saw uh, a couple um, people asking for money, and they uh, they were maybe maybe eight people asking for money, like one a day. And it was usually a, a mom, like a refugee uh, style mom with like kids, being like, "Does anybody give a euro?" And I only saw one insane person, and it was like a white French guy who was benign. In he would just like walk past us and sing like uh, French songs, and then <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's what I was gonna right? say is watching your trip from afar. I kind of longed for that trip, and also I never went to the catacombs. I noticed you went to the catacombs, and yeah, I I know that it had something to do with the uh, Crusades, and they were just <laughs> shoving. We wish it. Uh, no, France is both beautiful and spooky, or Paris is. The catacombs in Italy uh, go back to the Christians burying their own in the underground. Mm. But the catacombs in France are fairly modern. They're from like the 1750s uh, or 60s. And what happened was uh, France is like one of the first um, metropolises of m m like modern Europe. And so they had to deal with all of these issues. And one of the issues uh, the, of growth, one of the issues is uh, what do you do with dead people? So their cemeteries were overflowing, and um, the limestone quarries that were cat or tunnels under the city would collapse, and flood, and uh, bones and corpses from the cemeteries would flood these areas, like in um, Poltergeist, you know, or you would just you know the apartment buildings next to the cemeteries after rainstorms would just have like bodies in them. Yeah, it's like real gross. Yeah. And they had to find a way to deal with all this. So they were like, why don't we just like create like a bone temple underground? So it's super modern, the idea. Like, uh, 
I, well, I was texting my friend here in New York, Julia, and I was like, yo, I'm going to go uh, to the catacombs. And she was like, steal me a, a femur. And I thought about it, you know, because yeah, you yeah, can like get that. real close. But security was tight. And But I was like, okay, if they open up my fanny pack and I've got a full femur in there, like a big long bone, I'll just I'll just be like, dude, I'll give it back when you guys give back everything you stole from Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm just following your lead. Like this is your culture, right? To take things like I'm. You know? Yeah. This belongs in a museum. What about Central Africa? Yeah. I'm going to Indiana Jones that shit and take it back to the U.S. Hell you know, yeah. As a true... Repatriating. <laughs> <laughs> as an archaeological hero. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it looked like, all in all, it looked like an amazing trip. And the com- comedy scene, how was the comedy scene there? International, man. I think one of the most challenging things when you do comedy abroad is the... Uh, everybody's English is different. So the British guys were saying words in a different way or the Algerian comedians who had learned English. Um, one example is this guy was asking me, uh, an Algerian comedian, do you call this, uh, do they call them pom-pom girls? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, oh, cheerleaders. And he's like, ah, oh, yeah, cheerleaders. You know, so I was like, no one in the U.S. has ever called a cheerleader a pom-pom girl. Right. Or maybe like a grandma from the, it sounds like a word from the fifties. Yeah. So you, you have to one change your language so that people understand you or find the most universal aspect of what you're talking about. I had a, I told a joke about Uber using Uber instead of using an ambulance to get to the hospital. Yeah, yeah of course. And that joke, uh, at first they weren't getting it because they never have had to consider paying money for medical services right. <laughs> so they couldn't wrap their heads around like why i would hesitate to call an ambulance to get me to the hospital and why i would call an uber instead right and i was like oh because you guys realize that i live in a dystopian hellscape <laughs> so this is a message from the third world that you will soon be part of as well <laughs> <laughs> and then they got it you're like soon your free health insurance is going to, <laughs> yeah, be stripped from you and taken away. Totally, totally. So that that's like, I think every comedian or anyone practicing stand up as an exercise should go and do it in another country, and you'll you'll just like pick up different styles and see what people are doing in other places. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because humor is its own language. Yeah. So, and they respect clowning in Britain. Oh yeah. So like I was on sh- I was on lineups with several several clowns. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a guy that your brother knows that I know too. He went to clown school. Uh huh. And he yeah, it was like a thing in France. It's a very respected. There's also that show Baskets. I haven't seen Baskets. Uh, it's cool. It's worth uh, watching. But uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. Trained clown. Borat, clowning. That's clowning. Yeah. That's verbalized clowning. That's right. Because aren't clowns supposed to be quiet? He is uh, one type, the Buffant, I Buffon. think is the name, right? And yeah. so that that uh, clown is, um, the style is to play dumb, almost like a naive innocent who um, can say really offensive things or like holds up a mirror to society and it because they're they act dumb because they play innocent right and so that's how they get away with it yes so it also know. boils people's blood <laughs> slowly no i hate it i hate uh i like borat doing it but i hate pranks um i hate like mind-numbing uh comedy because <laughs> i love the shit because life is already like difficult enough like we're trying to construct meaning and to have like uh like alien acid poured onto logic <laughs> and just like melt that's an amazing quote melt all of our reasoning and like ability to find some common truth (laughs) wow you're talking about the rehearsal on hbo right now basically yeah i hate that show by the way yeah uh we talked about it last week but i hadn't watched it yet you brought it up and and i was like man nothing about this feels feels good this (laughs) now it's just People trying to figure out how far he took it and whether or not everyone who's on the show is actually an actor. Yes. Because that's a very possible thing. 
Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, it's just like the most. I don't know, man. It reminds me of like pickup artist stuff, where in like the early aughts, there was this idea of well, just keep you know approach the girl, um, and it's all about reps and do it a thousand times. It is like the Malcolm Gladwell nightmare of <laughs> applied to like uh, socializing and being a human. Yeah, it, and and the pickup artist did that and dehumanized women by. Or all social engagements. Well, by it's like uh, ten thousand hours of dehumanizing women yeah. before you become a master at dehumanizing women. And and like what Nathan is doing in this show is kind of like applying that same logic to uh, the rehearsing to game out every possible um, scenario to have the upper hand. Yes. in the end, striving for control. Control is the problem. Like we should not be striving for control. We should be learning to embrace chaos be malleable be like water yes <laughs> right we anyway france was great uh high recommend i want everybody to go also just to realize that you don't have to spend every moment of the day hustling and that they created a city that is all about leisure literally every block has a new cafe and all of the restaurants are designed like theater seats where you are watching what's happening in the street so, like, the culture inc- incentivizes you to just people watch. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's everywhere. We got that in New York because of the pandemic, the outdoor seating, but it's still not the same as no. it is out there. Because, like you said, out there, it is stadium seating for people watching. Yeah, because here, even in the streets, it is still you're in your own private cube and you're staring at just the person across the table from you. Yeah. Whereas there, you never really sit like watching the person you're with. It's almost as though you're sitting shotgun to your uh, dining partner. Yep. And you're just staring out into the street. Yeah. And uh, and then old people. I've never seen so many happy old people. Every old person I see in New York is like a bent over grumpy comma. And they've yeah. got the, they've got like the laundry basket, and they just look miserable. And they've got to take the basket down the two flights of stairs to get to the subway, where the MTA cops don't help them, but like wait to arrest them if they try to jump the turnstile because their social security doesn't cover uh, transit. And um, oh, fuck. <laughs> and uh, like New York is not a city for old people. Oh hell no! But Paris, a hundred percent. I was just seeing like old ladies. Uh, Real old ladies, like 80, you know, like they look like they had sex with like Charles de Gaulle and shit, you know, <laughs> they're just like sitting down at the table next to us, having ice cream, drinking a bottle of wine, smoking a cigarette, and then moving on to go swing dance down by the Sien River. It's bonkers. Yeah, dude. So, you know, it shows you that there's a life after you retire. Yeah. You know, or work, it does not define you as a person in, in Paris. And you can live there and be comfortable. Yeah. As an old person. You can't do that in this city. It's not walkable for old people. Everyone's trying to mow you down on the sidewalk. Nobody wants a slow-ass old person on the sidewalk. Yeah. But more than that, there is just no way, I think, to be an old person without a ton of resources and extra hands to actually live a comfortable life in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, big, big fan. Check it out. Go there. Uh, while I was there, uh, obviously I couldn't um, soak up all the culture 24 hours a day, so I did go and get a VPN and watch Hulu because Prey came out. So I, I had to see Prey the day it came out on Hulu with my VPN. For the listeners out there, you know me and Gabe are both huge Predator fans. We can't get enough of it. Love Predator 1, love Predator 2, love Predators. I didn't like the the new one, the Shane Black directed predator oh right and this one is probably the second best of the series i agree entirely yeah if not uh, a standalone like perfect film it's epic yes yeah and i think what you said there is true too like it uh it is definitely good as a standalone uh, if you've never seen predator which shame on you if you haven't then you could watch this and you would be completely fine yeah honestly if you haven't seen predator the first one you should 
after you finish listening to that, put this on at 1.5 speed if you're listening to it at normal speed to speed through the rest of our episode and then go abandon your family, abandon your children, uh, break whatever date you have tonight and go just watch Predator. It's on Hulu. Yeah. I agree. It's such a fucking great movie. Yeah. Whatever you're, don't study for the LSATs tonight. Go watch Predator. Hell yeah. Yeah. I know you've got, you're going to a sex party later. It, <laughs> it can wait. Go an hour and 30 minutes late. And then dress like the Predator to the sex party. <laughs> <laughs> dress yeah. like Arnold. Cover One yourself thing in I a loved about uh, Prey was yeah. the fact that in the age of diversity, equity, and inclusion, they have a female protagonist and she's native. And it actually, the movie actually rocks. As opposed to them still having the protagonist be a white dude and then having the supporting cast all be like a mishmash of different ethnicities. Sure. If this was in the 80s uh, or 90s even, it would have been like Dances with Wolves. Yes. Where like there'd be a white savior Kevin Costner character yes. trying to like lead the Comanches to, uh, uh, you know, out of the Predator's kill zone. Exactly. And be like, Comanches, let me teach you how to hunt. You don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, uh, they did a great job of um, both making uh, like the protagonist a woman and uh, having it be, but also having it feel uh, grounded in a in a a reality for the fantastical as the idea is that an alien's gonna come down to Earth and hunt humans. Totally, you know, it it all made sense and it didn't feel like try hard. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like yes. We're making a woman the protagonist. Exactly. And that's what I thought was really great about it. It's, you know, people trying to pass the Bechdel test, but just barely (laughs) is what's happening in the world right now. Yeah. And in this movie, it was just epic. And, uh, you know, my family's in Wyoming right now. And and the this looked exactly like the Grand Tetons mountain range or anywhere in the Rocky mountains like that. Right. So I was like, mom, you got to watch this. You got to watch it. it. And the Comanche were, uh, rolling around that area in real life at that time. So around Wyoming. Yeah. So it, it kind of makes sense. And, and it, it's not that this movie had to take place necessarily in Wyoming, but in, it could have been Colorado. It could have been Utah, Idaho, but it, that landscape is pretty uniform. Right. Yeah. It's very similar. I think, Utah is the outlier, but it's just west of that. Yeah, and Utah has like more deserts and uh, the red sand, yeah, whatever. But yeah, I I agree. Idaho, uh, Wyoming, Montana, all similar vibes out there. Yeah, and and so like because with the flora and the fauna, looking at the way, looking at the trees, the landscape that they had, um, and all all of the the first half of the movie. There's no predator. Right. It's just it's just Comanches and vibes. Yeah. You know, just doing just living their lives. Doing their and, thing. And it uh reminded me of Ap- Apocalypto is another uh great movie like that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that that gives you this um that really immerses you in the uh setting and makes you care about the characters um before anything terrible happens. So I like that. I like all of the animals that they had. Um, you know, they had wolves, they had grizzly bears, you know, me, beavers, what they had, be- do they had beavers. beavers make a cameo? Yeah. And, uh, they're actually pivotal in the film. So big, yeah, big fan of beavers and beaver dams. Hell yeah. And, uh, yeah, the bear scene reminded me of the revenant. Sure. Right. It's just as insane. <laughs> Fuck. Bears are so crazy and dangerous. Yeah. Also the predator is a real dick in this movie. Completely. And that's what I think is funny, because from the first Predator, you get to know the reason the Predators come to Earth is because the Predator is a ravenous hunter. So it's not like we are ruining anything. Right. But, but it's a leisure activity. Yeah. But this Predator seems to just be a complete asshole about it, you know? He's, he's, a, he's a real prick. Yeah. And uh, so it's... um. It's really cool to uh, to have like a super villainous uh, predator in this as well, right? Um, also, uh, when whenever we think about like North America and the United States, uh, I, I think a lot of our narratives start with uh, Plymouth Rock or start with the colonization of 
the East Coast by the British. And so to have this film set in a pre-U.S. North America in the, in the middle of the country, uh, populated by Comanches and uh, French fur trappers, gives us a new, a fresh perspective on uh, our, our uh, history as North Americans. If I like kids are going to watch this movie, obviously, you know, even though it's like for mature audiences, it's a predator movie and anybody over 10 is going to eventually see it. Uh, so this movie is a good conversation starter, ar even around like who was here first. Exactly. The fur trappers were the ones to even make it out west, obviously, yeah. at first, but they held it down out there. Well, like, okay, so uh, I was in Wyoming, and we've got Grand Teton National Park. Yeah. And the Teton means nipple. Right. So, like, these horny fur-trapping French dudes made it in, uh, out of this valley and saw those mountains, and they were like, oh, look at them titties. Yeah, right? exactly. So I was wearing a Grand Teton shirt, and uh, on the last day I was in France, I'm wearing it in the hotel, and there's, like, a little girl and her mom. And I was like, oh, sh And I looked down. It's like people nice like, titties. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. In the U.S., this is it's our national park. <laughs> it was named. I'm literally reflecting back to you, your culture. So if you're upset with me wearing, like, a big titties shirt, it's because <laughs> your explorers named our majestic natural landscape them big titties. Yeah. That's big naturals <laughs> in French. It's amazing. Yeah, man. So they, so we, uh, the French have a huge legacy in this country, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. that we have kind of like overlooked outside of New Orleans. What's crazy or pray, is rather. one of our avid listeners, Chris O'Coin, the uh -huh. editor, Chris O'Coin, you know Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He traced his lineage back to those first French that went to Canada. Uh huh. And uh, a bunch of them were sent away uh, by the French. Um, or I believe actually by the British. The British killed a bunch of his family early, early on. Yeah. And there was a whole like them being cast out and sent away, uh, whoever has remained. And then inevitably those people going to uh the their Acadians, they yeah. went down to New Orleans, which is why they say Cajun. Yeah. And um yeah, and then one of them went to Massachusetts where the rest of his family came. Sure. Inevitably descended from, but he's the descendant of the original French who went to Canada. Pretty interesting story. Yeah. The Poutine uh, Boys. Poutine Boys. Yeah, exactly. Shout out to Grisso Coin. Oh, also shout out to uh, Mission Hill Melts. They're a hash company. They're a national hash company that people know about all over the United States. They're very um, beloved in the hash community. Uh, and they also have some really amazing flour, but they also listen to this podcast. Um, and they sent me a video of them uh, hard at work making that hash rosin, uh, just putting the flash frozen weed into the giant thing of water and stirring away while listening to Halal Cartel. So shout out to Adam from Mission Hill Melts and Hannah, my cousin. Yeah. Yeah, we're big we're big fans of the hash over here, you know, uh, uh, and you know all small businesses, <laughs> <laughs> particularly hash ones. Yeah, hash related businesses. Yeah, sure. So uh, hell yeah, man, keep listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, I'm reading a book right now that I'm a big fan of, uh, yeah. the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, and I'm only about a hundred pages in, but high recommend. Uh, especially, you know, for if you've listened to these episodes, you know I've got a pretty bleak outlook on uh, the future of humanity based on the climate uh, as it's changing. And this book, <laughs> as far as I've gotten, it feels like it was written by a full-blown, tanky, uh, eco-activist. Like Kim Stanley Robinson, the, the premise of the book is, and I'll only give that away, is there is a uh, climate catastrophe and there's a heat wave that hits India and 20 million people, like the power goes out. It, this is like the first 10 pages. So the power goes out and over a week, 20 million people die in India from a heat wave. And that is the, the and this is like 10 years from now. So that is the first 
um, domino in like what uh, in the world that is to come and how far can you really get trying to make change with voting, which I'm laughing at, and with making laws that no one follows because we don't actually have an international um, board to like police the world. We're all threat on climate. And so you're seeing a bunch of scientists and a bunch of survivors from this event um, coming to a logical conclusion that I won't necessarily name because I don't want us to get censored. But, you know, I mean, I've had made jokes before about how if you want to deal with climate change, just go on LinkedIn and find the names of all the CEOs at Exxon and send them (laughs) And there's a lot of characters... Uh, in this book that are coming to the same conclusions. I feel you. That's probably the only way we're going to stop things. Because <laughs> I don't know what these people think is going to happen, but there's an obvious doom that we're about to... Well, we were talking about off mic, we were talking about Libya, and we were talking about the slave market in Libya right now, and uh, you brought up a list of countries where yeah. it's like slavery is popping right yeah, now. Yeah, slavery is really popping in India. Yeah, slavery is the wave right now in India. And China, like, Pakistan, <laughs> yeah, Russia, the Emirates. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, that like you know we we made uh the civil war we ended slavery um in eighteen sixty five here I guess, but um <laughs> I guess yeah it's true, <laughs> that's but, fucking true. <laughs> But it's it's a reality in uh, the world. There are so many people living in uh, in sla- enslavement, and it, there's one chapter in this, very short. So again, not giving too much away. But there's like a f- a fishing boat, and it's like a big trawler, uh, you know, d- depleting the ocean of uh, fish, and ha- and it's from the point of view of a guy who's enslaved. He like signed up to be on the fishing boat, and they took all of his uh, passports and stuff. And so now he's on this boat with a bunch of other like workers. And because the boat never docks, it only other boats come and they take the catch from that boat uh, and they refuel it at sea. So the, the enslaved people on the boat never get a chance to like get off the boat. And they're just like eating fish heads and gruel every day. <laughs> and uh, some of them like jump off the boat during storms because it's better to die than to like stay imprisoned. Right. And then this uh, this boat, um, so the anecdote in the story, it's fictional. This other boat shows up and uh, liberates them, takes them back, but leaves the crew on the boat and then the, the fishing boat, and then like, it blows up. They, they blow it up, and they're like, why'd you do that, by the way? And they're like, to stop the fishing. I wonder, A, like we never consider the labor, who it is that is extracting these uh, resources that we use, these non-renewable resources from the earth. Right. Be it the fish or be it um, uh, the lithium in our batteries, all slaves. And, uh, and then also the conclusion that this book of fiction uh, leads us to if we want to, like, stop the depletion of fish in the ocean. There's only one way to stop it, really. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Those fucking trawlers, too. Yeah. Commercial fisher. They're just nets that go <laughs> off the sides and just pick up, like... Yo, cuttlefish, dolphins, uh, baleen whales. Dude, a whale in a net? That's so depressing. Sure. My Instagram discover section is all just shark videos. Right? Sure. Every time I log on, that's all it is, is shark-related stuff. They're real dumb. You'd be surprised at how many people swim with sharks. Yeah. Yeah, and they're just petting them and shit. It blows my mind. I don't get it. Are they? Are these like carnivorous? The- yeah, big ass, giant ass, great whites and tiger sharks. Yeah, man, that doesn't make any sense. And they to put me. like Enya, <laughs> you know what I mean, or Moby or some shit, and they just play a video of them swimming around with these sharks in the ocean. You know that pod of killer whales, or they they like to be called orca now. Yeah. Killer killer whale is a bad PR yeah. name. I had a ex. They do fucking kill like this. Yeah, yeah. I had an ex who like got so mad at me whenever I called them killer whales. It was like I was calling them like uh, flight attend like stewardesses or something instead of <laughs> flight attendants. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, dude, I live in New York. They're like, I don't. Li- 
I no one cares what I call them. Yeah. Right. I'm not, I don't live near killer whales. They might be offended though. AKA orcas. Right. They don't care. They kill. They definitely kill. They can kill anything. Yeah, they're murderous creatures. <laughs> yeah, they are. And they're smart, and uh, they atta- they hunt in pods or packs, yeah. like wolves, and yeah. they will go underneath the shark and then uh, ram the shark with their noses in its underbelly and then flip it. And once a shark gets flipped over, it goes catatonic. It's disoriented. Yeah. They're like Liam Neeson in the gray. They absolutely are. You know? They eat uh, seals. And yeah. beat the shit out of them before beforehand. Yeah. yeah, they smash their heads on the rocks and stuff. Dude, they take their seal babies in front of the seal parents and just toss them back and forth like and hacky play. sacks. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody should read Ministry uh, for the Future. It so far it's it, it's captivating. Sounds good to me. Yeah, we're recording this on a Wednesday night, um, and we're gonna go and do some uh, free, no cover stand up comedy at Pete's Candy Store. Like we do every Wednesday. Yeah. And the lineup is fire as hell. Uh, so it shouldn't be free, but we do this for the culture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hit us up on Instagram and uh, or just come to uh, Pete's Candy Store if you're here on a Wednesday night. It's always free at 10 p.m. And on Instagram, I am Gabe Pack one G-A-B-E-P-A-C, the number one. And I am at Samirman, S-A-M-E-E-R-M-O-N. Yeah, and uh, write us a review. Give us five stars. If you're listening to this, another thing that we really love is when you screenshot your uh, phone uh, where you're listening and then just post it in your stories and tag us. And uh, that's a great way to show love. We have We have a Patreon as well. And uh, soon we're going to have some merch, man. We're going to have some T-shirts for you and maybe uh, some uh, lighters to help you light up your, your hash blunts. <laughs> Doinks. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, or whatever. However, you if you want to take a chunk of hash and put it in your Rick and Morty bong. Yeah. Dude, and just fucking light that up. We, we might have some lighters for you to do that too. You know. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We love you. Uh, tune in next week for a new episode. Peace. Peace.